Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, The Triumph of the Lamb, we'll be hearing a message entitled, The Seventh Bowl. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16, verses 15 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is an illusion that most of us treasure in our hearts. It's the illusion that everything will always remain as it is. You know, when we were children, I mean, we did believe that we would grow up, but that seemed so very far away that it made it feel like the present would remain for such a long time. I know as we get older, life and change seems to speed up, but still, there is this illusion of stability. And then very suddenly, everything can change. The person who hears the words, it's cancer, suddenly feels the world is abruptly altered and nothing will ever be the same. Really, the same is true for the person who loses his or her job or the person whose spouse tells him or her that he or she wants a divorce and and so on. I guess what I'm saying is that we never know when we're going to round a corner and the world will never be the same. And one of the reasons so many of us are shocked and bewildered and even embittered when this happens is that we just didn't imagine that our present circumstances really were always hanging by a very slender and delicate thread, a thread that was just bound to break. But we don't see it that way. We tend to think that life is stable, that things will always carry on as they have. You know, generations come, generations go, we think, and the earth remains, and so does the present nature of things. You know, I often think about how the world must have changed between the 1920s and the 1930s. In the 1920s were called the Roaring Twenties. The the economy was booming. People were moving from farms to the city. New inventions were capturing everyone's attention. The war to end all wars had been fought and won. And now, peace and prosperity and optimism filled the cultures of North America and Europe. But in 1929, the stock market crashed and North America was experiencing one of the greatest droughts ever. And millions upon millions were left unemployed as companies and banks suddenly went broke and a new wave of extremism was growing around the world, finally leading to the second great war of the century. How quickly things change. You know, often when disaster comes, it comes with stunning suddenness. The Bible speaks of the time of the end of the age in exactly that way. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3 says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Or listen to Peter's words recorded in 2 Peter 3 verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing ever changes. That's what they say. Peter goes on to say, that's what people thought at the time of the great flood when it swept them away. Still not convinced how suddenly things change? Still believe that things only change slowly? Well, think of the fact that something sprang to life from nothing when God merely spoke a word. That's the very essence of the thing. When God speaks, the external world conforms to him. Hence, any time God speaks, He's able to do the thing he intends. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. When we last studied Revelation 16, we had come to the pouring out of seven bowls containing the wrath of God. 
The first resulted in painful sores on all who followed the Antichrist, and the second resulted in the oceans dying, and the third, the fresh water was turned to blood, the fourth, the sun was changed and scorching the earth, the fifth, the kingdom of Antichrist was plunged into darkness, the sixth, the kingdoms of the world gather at Armageddon to fight against the return of Christ. And at this moment, there's a very short break in the action, that is, before the seventh bowl is poured out. So I'm reading Revelation 16, verse 15. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, these are the words of Jesus. He himself interrupts and stops John from telling of the seventh bowl. That's because we're not to think about the events of Revelation just to tell us what's going to happen in the future. We're to make application. We're to read the book of Revelation as it relates to our lives today and learn what these words mean for our everyday practical lives. And so Jesus' first words are that he's coming like a thief. Now, there are two other places in the New Testament where those very words are also being used. The first is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 to 4. Here, Paul is instructing the Christians in the ancient city of Thessalonica. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You see, for Paul, the analogy of a thief in the night is the unexpected and sudden nature of the thing. A thief does not announce his coming, neither does he take his time. I mean, his advantage is sudden, unexpected, and quick action. And in using this analogy, Paul is saying that the coming of the Lord is only like a thief in the night for those who don't anticipate his coming, nor are they aware of the season they're in. See, for them, just like Peter said, they assume that all things are going to go on as they always have. There will be peace and security in my time. They only anticipate more of the same, not the sudden inbreaking of God. But you're not in the darkness, Paul says to believers. One almost gets the idea of the difference between the person who's turned out the lights and gone to sleep in peace, and opposed to that is the person whose lights are on, expecting the thief at any time. Later in the passage, Paul says that believers belong to the day and not to the night. They they stay awake. They view the times in which they live with sober judgment. Now, the second text is found in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And in Peter's thinking, the thief in the night phrase belongs to more than just the second coming of Jesus. Now listen, yes, it does refer to Christ's second coming. But notice, Peter speaks about the heavens passing away and the end of this present order. That means everything from the return of Christ to the great judgment to the destruction of the earth followed by the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And and that's why Peter says the sudden, unexpected thing that will happen is everything that's included in that phrase, the day of the Lord. I think this must then include everything from the beginning of the tribulation to the end of the present age. 
Peter says the entire package of things will break into this world with such unexpected speed it will seem to this earth that it that happened as suddenly as a thief breaking into a house. Suddenly and unexpectedly, the world changes. Now, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus clearly has in mind both what Paul and Peter said. I mean, after all, Jesus is the one who trained both Paul and Peter. He is saying that for the kingdom of the Antichrist, they're suddenly going to find themselves in full military force on the plains of Armageddon. Imagine that. They're marching to Jerusalem to prevent the Messiah Jesus from taking his seat in Jerusalem. And on the way, the battle is arrayed, and wow, it's on the plains of Jezreel. And as unexpectedly as a thief breaking into your house, they realize they're right now involved in the battle of Armageddon, the last great battle on earth. Now then, says Jesus, I have a word that you should take from this. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus told his disciples, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then he adds, if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. So the meaning's plain. It's not just that we are to have a sense of expectation, yet we're supposed to have that, but we are to live in such a way that indicates we're ready for the day of the Lord. See, our Lord is telling us not to lose perspective. You know, if it seems to you that the kingdom of this world is winning, don't you lose perspective. It seems to you that all manner of advantages are to be had by living in concert with this world. Don't lose perspective. Keep Christ and his eternal kingdom as prime in all of your concerns. Four years ago, one of the most unique radio ministry programs in Canada was launched. No one imagined the response, the impact five minutes would have worldwide. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway has become a staple for those looking to be encouraged, challenged, searching for hope and joy, always founded in a walk with Jesus. In 2019, we're celebrating five years of Laugh Again, and we're doing so in the same unique way we launched the program, a Laugh Again Caribbean cruise, February 3rd to the 10th, 2019. Details are still under construction, but if you're looking for a week of refreshment, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with family and friends, join Phil Calloway, Isaac Dagno of Indoubt Ministries, and special musical guests and entertainment to be announced soon. For information on how you can be part of the fifth anniversary Laugh Again cruise, check out laughagain.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Revelation 16, 15 ends with Jesus commanding us to keep our garments on. You know, when the church of Laodicea was told that they were spiritually poor and and blind and naked, Christ meant that they were spiritually bankrupt. Instead, in light of the second coming of Jesus, we're to keep our focus. After that important reminder of what we are to take from the drama of the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, John now describes the last and final bowl of wrath that God will ever pour out onto this earth. So I'm reading Revelation 16, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. 
And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Now, these verses represent the great victory of Christ over the kingdom of the beast or the Antichrist. The nations gather in Armageddon, and Christ wins an overwhelming victory. And by way of further explanation, let me say that the next three chapters, that is, from Revelation chapter 17 all the way through to chapter 19, they describe the last bowl of God's wrath in great detail. So it's going to describe Christ coming on a white horse, along with the utter and complete collapse of the Antichrist and and the city of man, along with a wailing and agony over this great collapse. But the description we have at the end of chapter 16, that is, the description of the pouring out of the final bowl of God's wrath, well, it's a shortened account that will be expanded in the next three chapters. So, So keeping that in mind, look again at verses 17 to 21. The first is the heavenly announcement that it's done. The long war against God has now come to an end. And following that announcement comes overwhelming manifestations of divine glory, lightning, thunder, earthquake. Psalm 29 is a unique psalm which describes just how powerful is the voice of the Lord. The psalm says the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It shakes the wilderness. It strips the forest bare and and that his voice flashes forth flames of fire. And so it is in Revelation. God merely speaks the word and it's done. And with that, lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and then a massive earthquake. You know, since I live in British Columbia's West Coast, I'm well aware that I live in an earthquake zone. You know, I've been told that when the big one hits the West Coast, it's going to be so large that as far away as Winnipeg, it's going to feel some trembling from that quake. Now, if you don't know, that's over 2,200 kilometers away. That's immense. But in this case, this earthquake shakes the planet. The mere voice of God spawns an earthquake that leaves the nations gathered at Armageddon in utter disarray. Who can stand when God speaks? Next, we're told that the great city is split into three parts. And as we continue through Revelation, it becomes apparent that the city in question is the city of Babylon. As we will see as we continue to study Revelation, Babylon is a reference to the capital city of the kingdom of the Antichrist, and and that's led a number of Bible teachers to speculate as to what that city actually is. So some have argued that the ancient site of Babylon is going to be rebuilt in the last days, and I actually don't agree with that. Others have argued that Babylon is a cryptic reference to Rome, and from this, a number of Bible teachers have argued from this passage and from the book of Daniel that in the last days, the ancient Roman Empire will have to be revived and that Rome itself will be the capital city of the beast. Now, I tend not to want to engage in that kind of speculation, and I'm happy to say that that the Bible simply references Babylon as the capital of the beast. Now, we'll say more as we carry on in our study. But here in Revelation 16, we're told that the earthquake from the mouth of God devastates that city. It simply falls apart. Again, living in greater Vancouver, we talk about earthquake preparedness. 
Large office towers, condo units, are made to withstand earthquakes of a certain magnitude, and sometimes we're told that wood frame houses are better to withstand large quakes simply because they have give in them. But if a massive fault line is suddenly exposed underneath your house, well, I'm quite certain that building codes become a laughable thing. And since Babylon is depicted as split into three, I'm assuming massive fissures opening in the earth and the greatest city the earth has ever seen simply swallowed into the earth and becomes so great of a disaster zone that it will never be rebuilt. But John has not yet done his description. Not only does Babylon fall, so also do the cities of the nations. Imagine an earthquake so large that London and Paris and Rome and New York, LA, Mexico City, Beijing, Seoul, Korea, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Mumbai, many other world cities are instantly reduced to utter ruin. So massive is this earthquake, the earth itself is shaking and no human structure stands. This is the result of fighting with God. But still, we're not done describing the devastation. The text says, every island fled away. You know, last time my wife and I visited the big island of Hawaii, we were told that it is conceivable that a large chunk of that island will one day break off and it's going to fall into the sea and it's going to create a massive tidal wave and it's going to devastate the North American and South American coastline. What's described here is so very much larger Imagine a quake so large, the islands of the earth are destroyed. In such a case, we would anticipate tsunamis the earth has never seen before, as every coastal area of the earth would simply be reduced to wreckage. But still, Revelation is not done. The text says no mountains were to be found. Now again, I live close to the Cascades. It's a beautiful mountain range that runs down the west coast. And when you get further inland, the Cascades give way to the magnificent Rockies. And I want you to imagine the, the geological upheavals that, that gave rise to such magnificent mountains. You know, geologists speak of this clash of major tectonic plates that formed so massive of a phenomenon. And now, a phenomenon larger than what created them leaves the mountains falling into one another. In such a case, one must imagine huge sections of the earth that are uninhabitable. And then the hailstones. I read the last words of Revelation 16, trying to grasp the magnitude of what we read, beginning with great sores on humanity, followed by the destruction of the earth's great waters, massive changes in temperature, and now this. God's wrath on earth is such that the earth lies in waste before him. See how laughable it is to think that the nations of the earth would gather to wage war against the one who sits on the throne. So listen carefully to the words of Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know, suddenly, psalms like this begin to make sense. How shall anyone stand before the God who is altogether holy, and whose voice makes Lebanon skip like a calf? Indeed. And as our passage ends, whoever's left on earth 
is alive after these terrifying events, they simply curse God. It's all they can do. They've been utterly and overwhelmingly defeated. They will never rise again. Who will not then fear God? The gospel of Jesus Christ, in which God extends mercy to us in this hour, well, that gospel becomes ever more precious. Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup of wrath for all who put their hope in you. See, I began by saying that things can change very suddenly. All things don't carry on as they always did. Suddenly, God will break in, and in that hour, there will be no escaping it. History is his story. He owns history, and he owns this world. And what is your response? It must only be this. It's foolhardy to trust in this world or in the vain hope that we will be safe in our time. It's wisdom to remember that the only place of safety is found in finding peace with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Come to him today and simply say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sins and I forsake my trust in myself and in the things around me. I want to, from this day onward, trust in you alone. Give me a heart of faith so that I might grasp onto the promises that are true and live eternally in your presence. Amen. Well, John, you really haven't described a very good day to us as we, you've described all the things that have, have taken place and will take place. But I wonder why we're so hesitant to really grasp onto this. I think there's a sense out there that regardless of what comes up, well, you know, we'll just move on. Everything will be fine in the end. And in fact, things will even get better, what most people might think. But, but this doesn't depict this type of scene at all. No, there is a very real difference between the way Revelation sees the plan of God or history itself uh, being, you know, rolled out for us and the way in which, you know, a lot of secular humanists see this. I mean, there's a, there's a secularist belief that things will naturally just get better. I mean, eventually we're going to conquer all diseases and eventually, you know, our technology is going to free us from everything. I mean, eventually a lot of things, um, but the book of Revelation says eventually and suddenly God will break into the present hour and he will claim the earth that he has created as his own. And in that day, he will bring the nations of the world to judgment. And as you said, Ben, this is not a good day if you've put your hope in this world. Uh, in fact, this is the most frightening day that has ever been since creation began. You know, and there is that sense of suddenness to it. And I think with all disaster, with all chaos, there seems to be this suddenness. We're not prepared, and we're calling people to be prepared for that sudden happening. Yeah, we're supposed to, as the, as the text has been reminding us, we're supposed to be awake. In other words, be alert, put your hope fully in Christ, wait for his coming, and in that way, you know, this is a good day. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us here today on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. As we begin to reflect on the Easter season, we want to help you dig deeply into the significance, drama, and ultimate selfless sacrifice of Jesus. First, listen intently to Dr. Newfeld's new two-week Easter series beginning Monday, March 18th. That can be heard on this station, online at backtothebible.ca, or by downloading the podcast or Back to the Bible Canada's mobile app. Also, we want to encourage you in a special way by offering you Lee Strobel's book, 
a case for Easter as our free gift. In this book, Strobel makes a thorough investigation into three critical Easter questions. Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? Was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning? And did credible people subsequently encounter him? I think you'll find Strobel's book enlightening and deeply inspiring. So call us today for your free copy at one 800 6632425 or visit backtothebible.ca